Welcome to this Ubula Audio presentation of The Skylark of Space by E.E. E. Doc Smith. Volume 8, Chapter 20 These jewels puzzle me, Dick. What exactly are they? Crane asked as the four assembled, waiting for the first meal. He held up his third finger, upon which gleamed the royal jewel of Kondal in its mounting of intensely blue, transparent arnak. I know the name, Faden, but that is about all I seem to know about the thing. Well, that's about all anybody seems to know. It occurs naturally, just as you see it there, deep blue, apparently, but not actually transparent, constantly emitting that strong blue light. Can't be worked, can't be cut, can't be ground, it can't even be scratched. It won't burn or change in any arc Condalians can generate. And believe me, that's saying a mouthful. It doesn't change even in liquid helium. In other words, Mart, it's about as inert as it could possibly get. How about acids? You know, I've been wondering about that. And fusion mixtures and stuff like that. Osnomiums are pretty far back in chemistry. I'm going to see if I can get a hold of another one and see if I can't break it down some way or other. I can't seem to convince myself that an atomic structure could be that big. No, it would be a trifle oversized for an atom. Crane turned to the two girls. How do you like your solitaires? They're perfectly beautiful, and this Tiffany mounting is exquisite, Dorothy replied enthusiastically. But they're so big. They're as big as ten-carat diamonds, I think. Just about, Seaton said. But at that, they're the smallest Dunark could find. They've been kicking around for years, he says. They were so small, nobody wanted them. They like big ones, you know. Wait until you get back to Washington, Dot. People will think you're wearing a bottle stopper until they see it shining in the dark. Then they'll think it's a misplaced taillight. But let me tell you, when news gets out, wow, jewelers will be bidding up to a million bucks per jump for rich old dames who want something that nobody else can get. You're right, Dick, Crane said thoughtfully. Since we intend to wear them continuously, jewelers will see them. Any jewel expert will know at a glance that they are new, unique, and fabulously valuable. In fact, they could get us into some serious trouble, as fabulous jewels do. Yeah, I never really thought of that. Well, how about this? We'll let it out, casual-like, that they're as common as mud here, and that we're wearing them purely for sentiment. That at least will be true. And we're going to bring in a shipload of them to sell for everlasting, no battery needed, automobile parking lamps. And if our girlfriends really do wear their gowns to the president's ball, like Dot said they're going to, that'll help too. Nobody, but nobody would think wearing 38 pounds of cut stones on a dress if they cost very much per each. That would probably keep anyone from murdering our wives for their rings at least. Have you read your marriage certificate, Dick? Margaret asked. No. Let's have a look at that, Dottie. She produced the massive, heavily jeweled document. The auburn head and the brown one were very close to each other as they read together the English side of the certificate. Their vows were there, word for word, with their own signatures beneath them, all deeply engraved into the metal. Seaton smiled as he saw the legal form engraved below the signatures and read this aloud. I, the head of the church and commander-in-chief of the armed forces of Kundal, upon the planet Osnome, certify that I have this day in the city of Kondalek, of said nation and planet, joined in indissoluble bonds of matrimony. Richard Ballinger Seton, Doctor of Philosophy, and Dorothy Lean Vainman, Doctor of Music, both of Washington, D.C., USA, upon the planet Earth, in strict compliance with the marriage laws, both of Kondal and of the District of Columbia. Tarnan Karbix of Kondal, Witnesses, Roban, Emperor of Kondal, Tural, Empress of Kondal, Dunark, Crown Prince of Kondal, Sitar, Crown Princess of Kondal, Mark C. Duquesne, Washington, D.C., USA, Earth. That is some document. How do you know it complies with the marriage laws of the district? I'm warning if it does. Indissoluble and eternity are mighty big words for American marriages. Do you think we'd better get married again when we get back? Both girls protested vigorously, and Crane said, 
No, I don't think so. I intend to register this just as it is and get a court ruling on it. It will undoubtedly prove legal. I'm not too sure about that, Seaton argued. Is there any precedent in law that says a man can make a promise that will be binding on his immortal soul for the rest of eternity? I rather doubt it. I'm sure there will be, however, after our attorneys close the case. You forget, Dick, that the Seaton Crane Company, Engineers, has a very good legal staff. Well, that's right. I had. I'll bet they'll have fun kicking that one around. I agree, Dorothy said. I just can't get used to not having any night, and... It's not such a long time between meals, Seaton put in, as the two famous governors said about the drinks. How did you know what I was going to say? Oh, husbandly intuition, he grinned. Aided and abetted by a stomach that is accustomed to only six hours between eats. After eating, the men hurried to the Skylark. During the sleeping period, the repellers had been banded on, and the guns and instruments, including a full Kondalian radio system, had been installed. Except for the power bars, she was ready to fly. The Kondalian vessel lacked both power bars and instruments. How's the copper situation, Dunark? Seaton asked. I do not know yet, exactly. Crews are out scouring the city for all metallic copper they can find. But they won't find very much. As you know, we don't use it, as platinum, iridium, silver, and gold are so much better for ordinary use. We are working full-time on the copper plant, but it will be a day or so before we can produce virgin copper. I'm going to work on our instruments and controls. If you two are temporarily at a loose end, you might help me. Both men were glad to be of assistance. Crane was very delighted at the chance to learn how to work that very hard and extremely stubborn metal iridium from which all Condalian instruments were to be made. On the way to the instrument shop, Seaton said to Crane, But what tickles me most is this Aranac, and not only for armor. I suppose you've noticed your razor? Yes, how can I help it? I don't understand how anything can be that hard, Mart. Forty years on an Aranac dust abrasive machine to hone it and it'll shave ten men every day for a thousand years, and still have exactly the same edge that it started with. That is what I would call a contribution to science. Dunark's extraordinary skill and his even more extraordinary automatic machine tools made the manufacture of his instruments a comparatively short job. While it was going on, the foreman in charge of the scrap copper drive came in to report enough had been found to make two bars with a few pounds to spare. The bars were in the engines, one in each ship. "'Well done, Kolanix Melnin,' Dunark said warmly. "'I did not expect nearly that much.' "'We got every last bit of metallic copper in the whole city,' the foreman said proudly. "'Fine,' Seaton applauded. "'With one bar apiece, we're ready. Let him come.' "'We don't want them to come here. We want to go there,' Dunark said. One bar apiece is not enough for that. Oh, that's right, Seaton agreed. For an invasion in force, no. I'd let you have ours, but two wouldn't be any better than one. No, four at least, and I'm going to have eight. There should be some way of speeding up work on that copper plant, but I haven't been able to think of any. Speed it up. It's going at a fantastic rate already. On Earth it takes months, not days, to build smelters and refineries. I've got half a notion to go over there, but... But is right, Seaton said. You'd be more apt to throw the boys off stry than anything else. Could be, but... While a Kandalian prince was still standing undecided, a call for help came in. A freight plane was being pursued by a carlon a few hundred miles away. Now's your time to study one, Dunark, Seaton exclaimed. We'll drag him in here. Get your scientists out. The Skylark reached the monster before it reached the freighter. Seaton focused the attractor and threw on power, jerking the beast upward and backward. As it saw the puny size of the Skylark, it opened its cavernous mouth and rushed to attack. Seaton, not wishing to have his ship stripped of repellers, turned them on. The monster was hurled backwards to the point of equilibrium of the two forces, where it hung helpless, struggling and frantic. Seaton towed the captive back to the field. By judicious pushing and pulling, and by using every attractor and repeller the Skylark mounted, 
the three Earthmen finally managed to hold the monstrous body flat on the ground. But not even with the help of Dunark's vessel could all of the terrible tentacles be pinned down. The scientists studied the creature as well as they could, from battleships and from heavily armored tanks. I wish we could kill it without blowing it to bits, Dunark said via radio. Do you know of any way of doing that? No, not really, except for poison, maybe. And since we don't know what would poison it and couldn't make it if we did, I don't see much of a chance. Maybe we can tire him out, though, and find out where he lives. After the scholars had learned all they could, Seaton yanked the animal a few miles into the air and shut off the forces holding it. There was a crash, and the carlon, knowing that this apparently insignificant vessel was its master, shot away in headlong flight. What was that noise, Dick? Crane asked. I don't know. A new one on me. Maybe we cracked a few of his plates, Seaton replied as he drove the Skylark after the monster. Pitted for the first time in his life against an antagonist who could both outfly and outfight it, the Carlon put everything it had into his giant wings. It flew back over the city of Condalec, over the outlying country, and over the ocean. As they neared the Mardanalian border, a fleet of warships came up to meet the monster, and Seton, not wanting to let the enemy see the rejuvenated Skylark too closely, jerked the captive high into the air. It headed for the ocean in a perpendicular dive. Seton focused an object compass on it. Go to it, sport. We'll follow you clear to the bottom if you want to go that far. There was a tremendous double splash as the pursued and the pursuer both struck the water. Dorothy gasped and seized a handhold and shut both eyes, but she could scarcely feel the shock, so tremendous was the strength of the Skylark's new hull, and so enormous the power that drove her. Seton turned on his searchlights and closed in. Deeper and deeper the quarry dove. It became clear that the thing was just as much at home in the water as it was in the air. The lights revealed strange forms of life, among which were staring eye fishes floundering blindly in the unaccustomed glare. As the Carlon bored still deeper, the living things became scarcer, but the Earthmen still saw from time to time the living nightmares that inhabited the oppressive depths of those strange oceans. Continuing downward, the Carlon went clear to the bottom and stopped there, stirring up a murk of ooze. How deep are we, Mart? Something under four miles. No fine figures yet. Of course not. Strain gauges okay? They have scarcely moved off their zeros. Wow, good news. Even though I knew, well, in my mind, that they wouldn't. With our steel hull, they'd have been way up in the red by now. Wonderful stuff, this Aradak. Well, it looks as though he wants to sit it out here, and we won't find out anything else this way. Come on, sport, let's go somewhere else. Spaceship and Carlon went straight up fast. On reaching the surface, the monster decided to grab altitude and went so high that Seton was amazed. I wouldn't have believed that such a thing could possibly fly in air so thin, he exclaimed. It is thin up here, Crane said. 4.16 pounds per square inch. This has got to be his ceiling, I guess. wonder what he's going to do next. As if in answer, the Carlon dived toward the lowlands of Kandal a swampy region lush with poisonous vegetation and inhabited only by venomous reptiles. As it approached the surface, Seton slowed the Skylark down, remarking, He's going to have to flatten out pretty quick or he's going to bust something. But it didn't flatten out. Diving all out, it struck the morass head-on and disappeared. Astonished at such an unlooked-for development, Seaton brought the Skylark to a halt and stabbed downward with the full power of the attractor. The first stab brought up nothing but a pillar of muck. The second, one wing and one arm. Then the third, the whole animal, fighting as savagely as ever. Seaton eased the attractor's grip. If he digs in here again, we'll follow him. Will the sheep stand it? Duquesne asked. She'll stand anything, but you better all hang on. I don't know whether there'll be much of a jar or not. There was scarcely a jar at all, after the Skylark had been pulling herself downward quite effortlessly for something over a minute. Seaton glanced across at Crane, who was still sitting at his board doing nothing at all except smiling quietly to himself. 
What are you grinning at, you Cheshire cat? I was just wondering what you came down here for, and what you're going to prove. These instruments are lying unanimously and enthusiastically. Plastic flow, you know, not fluid. Uh-huh. Check. No lights, radar, or... We could build a sounder, or a velocitometer. There are quite a few things we can do, if you think it worthwhile to take the time. It's not, of course. After a few minutes more, Seaton again hauled the monster to the surface and into the air. Again it attacked with unabated fury. Well, that's about enough of that, I guess. Apparently he's not going home, unless his home was down there in the mud, which I just don't believe. We can't waste much more time, so you might as well put him away. The Mark V struck. The ground rocked and heaved under the concussion. Hey, I just thought of something, Seaton exclaimed. We could have taken him out and set him into orbit around the planet. Without air or water or food, he'd die sometime, I think. Then we'd have a perfect specimen to study. Oh, Dick, what a horrible idea. Dorothy's eyes flashed as she turned on him. You wouldn't want even such a monster as that to die that way. No, I guess I really wouldn't. He's a game fighter, so we'll let Dunark do it sometime if he wants. The Skylark reached the palace dock just before fourth meal, and while they were all eating, Dunark told Seaton that the copper plant would be in production in a few hours and that the first finished bar would roll at point 34, in other words, immediately after the first meal of the following day. Fine, Seaton exclaimed. You'll be ready in the Kandal. Take the first eight bars and be on your way. Whoosh! There goes Mardinal. Impossible, as you already know, if you think a little. Oh, yeah, the code. Well, I wouldn't want you to break it, of course, but it couldn't be, say, stretched just enough to cover a situation like this, which has never come up before. It cannot, Dunark said stiffly. But suppose... Pardon me, Dunark. Ignorance. I never really scanned it before. You're right. Yeah, I'll play ball. What's the matter, Dick? Dorothy whispered in his ear. What did you do to him? I thought he was going to blow his top. I said something I should have known better than to say. He replied loudly enough so that Dunark, too, could hear. Also, I shouldn't have told you the schedule I had in mind. It's been changed. The Skylark gets her copper first, and then the Kundal. And Dunark doesn't leave until we do. Why? I don't know. Any more than Dunark can figure out with all he got from my mind why you and I insist on wearing clothes. A matter of code. But just that little extra time wouldn't make any difference, would it? One chance in a million, maybe, with the bars rolling off the line so fast. No... After all this time, half an hour more won't make any difference. I suppose your men are loading the platinum, Dunark. Yes, they're filling number three storeroom full. Good work, Seaton. I've often wished there was some way of getting platinum out of jewelry and into laboratories and production. Your scheme will do it. I don't think much of your judgment in passing up the chance to make a million bucks or so, but I'd be glad to see jewelers drop platinum. I wonder how they'll put it across that platinum is not the thing for jewelry anymore. Oh, they can keep on using it all they want, Seaton said innocently, at exactly the same price as stainless steel. Who do you think you're kidding? Duquesne's reply was not a question, but a sneer. On the following morning, immediately after breakfast, enough bars were ready to supply both vessels. The Skylark was fueled first, then the Kandal. Both ships hopped across the plain and city, and time to the split second, landed as one upon the palace dock. Both crews disembarked and stood at half attention. The three Americans dressed in their whites, the twenty Kandalian high officers wearing their robes of state. This stuff is for the birds. Seaton's lips were scarcely moving. Only Crane could hear him. We stand here for exactly so many seconds to give the natives a treat. His eyes flicked upward at the aircraft filling the air. 
Then we come to full attention as the grand moguls and high panjandrums appear, escorting our wives, and the battleships salute and blast off. Jeez, flummery. But think how the girls are enjoying it, Crane said, using Seton's own technique. And you are going to do it, so I grab about it. I'd like to just pop off. I'd like to call Dot and tell her to shake a leg, but I won't. With Dunark what he is, I have to play ball. But I don't like it. Chapter 21 Suddenly the silence was shattered. Bells rang, sirens shrieked, whistles screamed. Every radio and visiset and communicator in or near the city of Condalec began to clamor. All were giving the same dire warning, the alarm extraordinary of invasion, of imminent and catastrophic danger from the air. Seton leapt toward the nearest elevator, but whirled back toward the Skylark, even before Dunark spoke. Don't try it, Dick. You can't possibly make it. Everyone will have time to reach the bomb-proofs. They'll be safe, if we can keep the Martinalians from landing. They won't land, except in hell, shouted Seton. The three sprang into the Skylark, Seton going to the board, Crane and Duquesne to the guns. Crane picked up his microphone. Send this in English and tell the girls not to answer, Seton directed. They can locate calls to a foot. Just tell them we're safe and to sit tight while we wipe out this gang of high binders that's coming. Duquesne was breaking out box after box of belts of ammunition. What do you want first, Seton? There's not enough of any one load to fight much of a battle. Start with Mark Fives and go up to tens. That ought to be enough. If not, follow up with fours and go down. Five to tens, fours and down. Check. There was a crescendo whine of enormous propellers, followed by a concussion of sound as one wing of the palace disappeared in a cloud of dust and debris. The air was full of Mardanalian warships. They were huge, each mounting hundreds of guns, and a rain of high-explosive shells was reducing the entire city to ruins. Hold it! Seton's hand was already on the lever, and he checked himself. Look! At the Kandal! Something's up. Dunark sat at his board, and every man on the crew was at his station, but all were writhing in agony, completely unable to control their movements. As Seton finished speaking, the Kandalians ceased their agonized struggling and hung unconscious or dead from whatever each was holding. They, they got to them somehow. Let's go, Seton yelled. The dock beneath fell away, and all three men thought the end of the world had come as a stream of shells struck the Skylark and exploded. But that four-foot armor of Aranak was impregnable, and Seton lifted his ship upward, directly into the Mardanalian fleet. Duquesne and Crane fired carefully, as rapidly as each could, consistent with making every bullet count. And as each bullet struck a warship, it disappeared, and there erupted a blast of noise in which the explosions of the Mardanalian shells, violent as they were, were completely inaudible. You haven't got the repellers on, Dick, Crane snapped. No, what an idiot I am, he snapped them on. Then, as the unbearable din subsided almost to a murmur, he shouted, Hey, they must be repelling even most of the air. The Skylark was now being attacked by every ship of the Mardanalian fleet, every unit having been diverted from its mission of destruction to the task of wiping out this appallingly deadly, appallingly invulnerable midget. From every point of the compass, from above and below, came torrents of shells. Nor were there shells alone. There also came guided missiles, tight-beam radio-steered airplane torpedoes, carrying warheads of fantastic power. But none of them struck Aranak. Instead, they all struck an immaterial wall of pure force and exploded a hundred feet off target creating an almost continuous glare of fury and flame. And Crane and Duquesne kept firing. Half of the invading fleet had been destroyed, and they were now using Mark VI's and Mark VII's. And anything struck by a seven was not merely blown to bits. It was disintegrated, volatized, dematerialized. Suddenly the shelling stopped, 
and the skylark was enveloped in a blinding glare from a thousand projectors, an intense, searching, violet light that would burn flesh and sear its way through eyelids and eyeballs into the very brain. Shut your eyes, Seaton yelled as he shoved the lever forward. Turn your heads. Then they were out in space. That's pretty nearly atomic bomb flash, Duquesne said incredulously. How can they generate that kind of stuff here? I don't know, Seaton said. But that isn't the question. What can we do about it? The three talked briefly and then put on spacesuits, which they smeared liberally with thick red paint. Under their helmets they wore extra-heavy welding goggles, so dark in color as to be almost black. This'll stop that kind of monkey business, Seaton exulted, as he again threw the Skylark into the Mardinalian fleet. It took about 15 seconds for the enemy to get their projectors focused, during which some 20 battleships were volatized, but this time the killing light was not alone. The men heard, or rather felt, a low-intense vibration, like a silent wave of sound, a vibration which smote upon the eardrums as no possible sound could smite, a vibration that racked the joints and tortured the nerves as though the whole body were being disintegrated. So sudden and terrible was the effect that Seaton uttered an involuntary yelp of surprise and pain as he once more fled to the safety of space. What in the hell was that? Duquesne demanded. Can they generate and project infrasound? Apparently, Seaton replied, they can do a lot of things we can't. If we had some first suits, perhaps, Crane began and then paused. We could put all our clothes on and then use earplugs. I think we can do better than that, Seaton studied his board. I'll short out this resistor so as to put more juice through the repellers. I can get a pretty good vacuum that way, certainly good enough to stop any wave propagated through air. Back within the range of the enemy, Duquesne, reaching for his gun, leapt away from it with a yell. Get out! Now! Once more to safe distance, Duquesne explained. That gun had a voltage on it. Plenty of it. It's lucky that I'm so used to handling hot stuff. I never really make contact with anything at first touch. It's easy, though. Thick, dry gloves, rubber shields is all we need. It's a good thing for all of us that you have those fancy handles on your lever, Seton. That must have been how they got Dunark and his crew. But why didn't they get the two of you? Oh, yeah. They tuned it to iridium. They don't know anything about steel, unless they chipped a sample off from somewhere. So it took them until now to tune to it. You recognize everything that happens. Can you tell what they're going to do next? Crane asked. Not quite everything. This last one is a new one on me. Must be the big new one Dunark was worrying about. The others, yeah, but the defenses against them are purely Kandalian in technique and material, so we have to roll our own as we go. As to what's coming next? He paused and thought and then went on. I wish I knew. You see, I got too many new things at once, so most of them are like generally remembered things that flash into real knowledge only when they happen. But maybe mentioning something would do the trick. Let's see. What have they given us so far? They've given us plenty, Duquesne said admiringly. Light, ultra, and visible, sound, infra, or subsound, and solid jolts of high-tension electricity. They haven't yet used X-rays, accelerated particles, Hertzian waves, infrared heat. Heat! That's it! Seaton exclaimed. They project a wave that sets up induced currents in Aranac. They can melt armor that way, give it enough time. Our refrigerators can handle a lot of heat. They can, the limit being the amount of water on board. And when we run out of water, we can hop over the ocean and cool the shell off. We ready? They were, and soon the Skylark was again dealing out death and destruction to the enemy vessels, who again turned from the devastation of the helpless city to destroy this tiny but incredibly powerful antagonist, and Duquesne, considerably faster of the two gunmen, was now shooting Mark 10s. In the starkly incomprehensible violence of those earth-shaking blasts, 10 or 12 battleships usually went into their component atoms 
as opposed to only two or three. After only a few minutes, the Skylark's armor began to heat up, and Seaton turned the refrigerators, already operating at full rating, up to the absolute top of 50% overload. Even that was not enough, although the interior of the ship stayed comfortably cool. The armor was so thick that it simply could not conduct heat fast enough. The outer layers grew hotter and hotter, red, cherry red, then white. The ends of the rifle barrels, set flush with the surfaces of the Arnak globes, began to soften and to melt so that firing became impossible. The copper repellers began to melt and to drip away in flaming droplets so that exploding shells and missiles came closer and closer. Well, it looks as if they have stopped us for the moment, Duquesne said calmly, with no thought of quitting, apparent in either voice or manner. Let's go dope out something else. They again went up out of range. They had only started discussing ways and means when a call came, uncoded, on the general wave. Kafedix Seton, Kafedix Seton, acknowledge please. Kafedix Seton, Kafedix Seton acknowledging. This is Kafedelix Depar, commanding four task forces. The Karbix Tarnan has ordered me to report. He's broken radio silence then? Seton demanded. I have. The Karbix did not go on to explain, either that it was necessary or that it was now safe to do so. Seton knew both of those facts. Good, said Seton, and went on to explain to both the commander-in-chief and commander the nature and deadliness of Mardinal's new weapon. Carfidelix de Par, continue your report. The Carbix Tarnan ordered me to report to you for orders. There is a Mardinalian fleet approaching from the east. Have I your permission, sir, to attack it? Can you insulate against twenty kilovolts all the iridium your men must touch? I think so, sir. Thinking isn't good enough. If you can't, land and get insulation before engaging any Martinalian vessel. Are any more of our task forces en route? Yes, sir. Four within the quarter hour. Three more in one, two, and three hours, respectively, sir. Report acknowledged. Stand by. Seaton frowned and thought. He had to appoint an admiral, but he certainly did not want to ask, with every living Condalian listening, whether or not this Depar was a big enough man for the job. Carbix Tarnan, sir, he said. Tarnan acknowledging. Sir, which of your officers now in the air is best fitted to command the defense fleet now assembling? Sir, the Carfidelix Depar. Sir, thank you. Carfidelix Depar, I give you authority to handle and responsibility for handling correctly the forthcoming engagements. Take command. Thank you, sir. Seaton dropped his microphone. I've got it doped, he told Crane and Duquesne. The Skylark's faster than any shell ever fired and has infinitely more mass. She's got four feet of Aranac. They only have an inch. Aranac doesn't begin to soften until it's radiating high in the ultraviolet. Strap down solid, boys. This is going to be a rough party from here on out. Again, the Skylark went down. Instead of standing still, however, she darted directly at the nearest warship, under 20 notches of power. She crashed straight through it, without even slowing. Torn wide open by the 40-foot projectile, its engines wrecked and its helicopter screws and propellers useless, the helpless hulk plunged through two miles of air to the ground. Darting here and there, the spaceship tore through vessel after vessel of the Mardinalian fleet. Here indeed was a guided missile, an irresistible projectile housing a human brain, the brain of Richard Seaton, keyed to his highest pitch and fighting the fight of his life. As the repellers dripped off, the silent wave of sound came in stronger and stronger. He was battered by the terrific impacts, nauseated and almost blacked out by the frightful lurches of his hairpin turns. Nonetheless, with teeth tight-locked and eyes gray and hard as the fracture of high-carbon steel, Richard Seaton fought on. Projectile and brain were and remained one. Although it was impossible for the eye to follow the flight of the spaceship, the mechanical sighting devices of the Mardinalians 
kept her in fair focus, and the projectors continued to hurl into her a considerable fraction of their death-dealing output. Enemy guns were still emitting streams of shells, but unlike the waves, the shells moved so slowly compared to their target that few found their mark. Many of the great vessels fell to the ground, riddled by the shells of their sister ships. Seaton glanced at his parameter. The needle had stopped climbing, well short of the red line marking the fusion point of Aranac. Even as he looked, they began very slowly to recede. There weren't enough Mardinalian ships left to maintain such a temperature. He felt much better, too. The subsound was still pretty bad, but it was bearable now. In another minute, the battle was over. The few remaining battleships were driving at top speed for home, but even in flight they continued to destroy. The path of their retreat was a swath of destruction. Half inclined at first to let them escape, Seton's mind was changed as he saw what they were doing to the countryside under them. He shot after them, and not until the last vessel had been destroyed did he drop the Skylark into the area of ruins which had once been the palace grounds, beside the Kandal, which was still lying as it had fallen. After several attempts to steady their whirling senses, the three men were able to walk. They opened the lock and leapt out through the still white-hot wall. Seton's first act was to call Dorothy, who told him that the royal party would come up as soon as engineers could clear the way. The men removed their helmets, revealing pale, drawn faces, and turned to the Kandal. There's no way of getting into that thing. Oh, wait, look, they're coming too. Dunark opened the lock and stumbled out. I have to thank you for more than my life this time, he said, voice shaken as much by emotion as by the shock of his experience as he grasped the hands of all three men. I was conscious most of the time and saw most of what happened. You have saved all Kandal. Ah, uh, it's not that bad, Seaton said uncomfortably. Both nations have been invaded before. Yes, but not with anything like this. This would have been final, but I must hurry. If you will relinquish command to me, Dick, please, I will restore it to the Carbix. The Kandal will, of course, be his flagship. Seaton snapped to attention and saluted. Kofidex Dunark? Sir, I relinquish to you my command. Carfidex Seton, sir, with thanks of what you have done, I accept your command. Dunark hurried away, talking as he went with surviving officers of the grounded Kandalian warships. In a few minutes, the Emperor and his party rounded a heap of boulders. Dorothy and Margaret screamed in unison as they saw the haggard faces of their husbands and saw their suits dripping with red. Seaton dodged as Dorothy reached him and tore off his suit. It's just red paint, honey, he assured her as he lifted her off the ground. Out of the corner of his eye, he saw the Kandalian staring in open-mouthed amazement at the Skylark. He turned. She was a huge ball of frost and snow now. As Seaton came back to the girls from shutting off the refrigerators, Roban came up and gave the Earthmen thanks in the name of his nation for what they had done. Has it yet occurred to you, Carfidex Roban, Margaret said diffidently, that had it not been for your rigid adherence to your code, none of us Tellurians would have been on Osnome or near it when the Mardinalians attacked you? No, my daughter, by no means. I still fail to see the connection. Will you explain, please? Dick's idea was to have Dunark take the first eight bars of copper and sail for Mardinal. Then... We would take the next 40 bars, which would have taken you about half an hour to make, and then leave for Earth. Then, when Dunark arrived at Mardinal, he would have been shot down out of control, wouldn't he? Undoubtedly. I understand now, but please, go ahead. How long did it take the Mardinalian fleet to get here? About 40 of your hours. Then, assuming that Dunark didn't take any time at all in getting over there, we would have been gone about thirty-nine and a half hours when they struck. But there wasn't that much time. They must have been well on their way when we were getting the copper. Very true, daughter Margaret. But the end result would have been precisely the same. You would have been gone at least one hour, which for us would have been as bad as one thousand. The Carfidix Roban stood facing the party from Earth. 
Back of him stood his family, the officers and nobility, and a multitude of people. Is it permitted, Carfedo, that I award your captive some small recognition of the service he has done my nation? It is permitted, Seaton and Crane replied in unison. Whereupon Roban stepped forward, and after handing Duquesne a heavy bag, fastened about his left wrist, the emblem of the Order of Condal. I welcome you, Carfidelix Duquesne, to the highest nobility of Condal. He then clasped around Crane's wrist a bracelet of ruby-red metal bearing a peculiarly wrought, heavily jeweled disc, at the sight of which the nobles saluted, and Seton barely concealed a start of surprise. Carfidelix Crane, I bestow upon you this symbol, which proclaims that Throughout all Condalian Osnome, you have authority as my personal representative in all things great and small. Approaching Seton, Roban held up a bracelet of seven discs so that everyone could see it. The nobles knelt, the people prostrated themselves. Carfadix Seton, no language spoken by a man possesses words able to express our indebtedness to you. In small and partial recognition of that indebtedness, I bestow upon you these symbols which declare you to be our overlord, the ultimate authority upon all Osnome. Lifting both arms above his head, he continued, May the great first cause smile upon you in all your endeavors until you solve the prime mystery. May your descendants soon reach the ultimate goal. Goodbye. Seton spoke a few heartfelt words in response, and the five earth people stepped backwards toward their ship. As they reached it, the standing emperor and the ranks of nobles snapped into the double salute, truly a rare gesture. What do we do now? Seaton whispered. I'm fresh out of ideas. Bow, of course, Dorothy said. They bowed deeply and slowly and entered their vessel, and as the Skylark shot into the air, the grand fleet of Kandalian warships fired a royal salute. Chapter 22 Duquesne's first act upon gaining the privacy of his own cabin was to open the bag presented to him by the Emperor. He had expected to find it filled with rare metals, with perhaps some jewels, instead of which the only metal present was a heavily insulated tube, a full half-pound of metallic radium. The least valuable items of his prize were hundreds of diamonds, rubies, and emeralds of very large size and flawless perfection. Merely ornamental glass to Roban, he had known their earthly value. To this wealth of known gems, Roban had added a rich and varied assortment of the strange jewels peculiar to his own world, the Phaedon alone being absent from the collection. Duquesne's calmness almost deserted him as he sorted out and listed the contents of the bag. The radium alone was worth millions of dollars, and the scientist in him exulted at the uses to which it could be put, even when he was also exulting at the price he could get for it. He counted the familiar jewels, estimating their value as he did so. It was a staggering total. That left the strange gems enough to fill the bag half full, shining and glowing and scintillating in multicolored splendor. He sorted them out and counted them, but made no effort to appraise them. He knew he could get any price he pleased. Now, he breathed to himself, I can go on my way. The return voyage through space was uneventful. Several times as the days wore on, the Skylark came within gravity range of gigantic suns, but her pilots had learned the most important fundamental safeguard of interstellar navigation. Automatic indicating and recording of goniometers were now on watch continuously set to give alarm at a deviation of two seconds of arc, and their dead reckoning of acceleration and velocity were checked, twice each eight-hour shift, by triangulation and application of Schuller's method. When half the distance had been covered, the bar was reversed, the travelers holding their impromptu ceremony as the Skylark spun through an angle of 180 degrees. A few days later, Seton, who was on watch, thought he recognized Orion. It was by no means the constellation he had known, but it seemed to be shifting ever so slowly toward the old familiar configuration. Yes, it was Orion. Come here, everybody, he shouted, and they came. 
That, my friends, is the most gladsome sight these feeble old eyes have ever rested on for many a long and weary moon. Wassel! They wassled with glee, and from that moment on the pilot was never alone at his board. Everyone who could be there was, looking over his shoulders to watch the firmament while it assumed a more and more familiar aspect. They identified Saul, and sometime later they could see the planets. Crane put out all the magnification he had, and the girls peered excitedly at the familiar outlines of continent and oceans upon the lighted half of the visible disk. It was not long until these outlines were plainly visible to the unaided vision, the earth appearing as a softly shining greenish half-moon, with parts of its surface obscured by fleecy wisps of cloud, with its ice caps making its poles two brilliant areas of white. The wanderers stared at their world with hearts and throats as Crane made certain that they would not be going too fast to land. The girls went to prepare a meal, and Duquesne sat down beside Seton. Have you gentlemen decided what you intend to do with me? No, we haven't discussed it yet, and I can't make up my mind, frankly, except that I'd like to have you in a square ring with four-ounce gloves. You've been of altogether too much real help on this trip for either of us to enjoy seeing you hanged. At the same time, you're altogether too much of a scoundrel for us to just let you go free. I personally don't like anything we can do or not with you. That's the fix I'm in. What do you suggest? Nothing, Duquesne replied calmly. I'm in no danger whatever of either hanging in prison, since nothing you can say or do along those lines bothers me at all. Hold me or free me as you please. I will add to that, while I have made a fortune on this trip and do not have to associate any longer with steel unless it is in my interest to do so, I may find it desirable at some future time to obtain a monopoly of X. If so, you and Crane and possibly a few others would die. No matter what happens or does not happen, however, this whole thing is over as far as I'm concerned. Done. Fini. You're going to kill us. You talk like a guy with a paper nose. Go ahead, Buster. Take a shot at us. Anytime you want. We can outrun you, outjump you, throw you down, or lick you. Hit harder, run faster, dive deeper, and come up drier. For fun, money, chalk, or marbles, you take your pick. A thought struck him, and every trace of levity disappeared. Face hard and eyes cold, he stared at Duquesne, who stared unmovingly back at him. Listen, Duquesne. Seton said slowly, every word sharp, clear, and glacially cold. That goes for Crane and me personally. Nobody else. I could be arrested for what I think of you as a man. And if anything you ever do touches either Margaret or Dorothy in any way, I will kill you like I would a snake. Or rather, I'll take you apart like I would any other piece of scientific apparatus. And don't think this is a threat. It's a promise. Do you understand me? Is this clear? Perfectly. Good night, Seaton. For many hours, Earth had been obscured by clouds, so that the pilot had no idea of what part was beneath them. To orient himself, Seaton dropped down into the twilight zone until he could see the surface, finding that they were almost directly over the western end of the Panama Canal. Dropping still lower, to about 10,000 feet, he stopped and waited while Crane took bearings and calculated a course to Washington. Duquesne had retired, cold and reticent as usual. After making sure he had overlooked nothing, he put on the leather suit he had worn when he left Earth. He unlocked a cubby, taking therefrom a Kandalian parachute, then making sure every foot of the way that he was not observed, he made his way to the airlock and entered it. Thus, when the Skylark paused over Panama, he was ready. Smiling sardonically, he opened the outer valve and stepped out into 10,000 feet of air. The neutral color of the parachute was lost in the twilight a few seconds after he left the vessel. The course computed, Seaton set the bar, and the Skylark tore through the air. When about half the ground had been covered, Seaton spoke suddenly. You know, I forgot about Duquesne, Mart. We'd better lock him in, don't you think? Then we'll have to decide whether we want to put him in the jailhouse or turn him loose. 
I'll go see to it, Crane said. He returned almost immediately with the news. Well, Dick, he must have picked up a Condalian parachute. You can't quite put one in your pocket, but pretty near. But I can't say I'm sorry he got away. Anyway, we can get him at any time we want him, because that compass is still looking right at him. I think he earned his liberty, Dorothy declared. I think he deserves to be shot, Margaret said. But I'm glad he's gone. He gives me the cold, creeping shivers whenever he's around. By the end of the calculated time, they saw the lights of a large city beneath them, and Crane's fingers tightened upon Seaton's arm as he pointed downward. There were the landing lights of Crane Field, seven searchlights throwing up their mighty beams into the night. Nine weeks, Dick, he said unsteadily, and Shira would have kept them burning for nine years if necessary. The Skylark dropped easily to the ground, and the wanderers leapt out, to be greeted by the half-hysterical Japanese. Shiro's ready vocabulary of peculiar but sonorous words failed him completely, and he bent himself nearly double in a bow, his face one beaming smile. Crane, with one arm around his wife, seized Shiro's hand and wrung it in silence. Seaton swept Dorothy off her feet, and their arms tightened around each other. The End We hope you've enjoyed this bookcast presentation of The Skylark of Space by E.E. E. Doc Smith. This is your narrator, Jim Campanella. For those of you not old enough to recognize the theme music at the beginnings and ends of the episodes, it was repurposed from the Buck Rogers and the 25th Century TV show from 1979, and it was composed by Glenn A. Larson. Please feel free to write us and tell us what you think at Uvula Audio at uvulaaudio.com. You can also become a Facebook fan of Uvula Audio. Just do a search for Uvula Audio on Facebook, or you can do it from the main Uvula Audio webpage. As usual, check out our Cafe Press website for t-shirts, etc. For other Uvula Audio titles, please go to our website at www.uvulaaudio.com. We are listed on iTunes, and you can subscribe and download our podcasts for free from there. If you like our podcast, please feel free to tip us whatever amount you may like using the secure PayPal links at uvulaaudio.com. From all of us at Uvula Audio, we thank you. <laughs>